Okay, okay. First of all, thank you so much, Mrs. House, for putting this together. And thank you so much when I heard that Rabbi Dr. Shifton agreed to uh, you know, facilitate some really exciting and engaging conversation. I was tremendously honored and very much excited for that. So I want to frame this with you know, 10 to 15 minutes of just uh, a little bit of a different conversation than I usually have with my book talk. I went on tour and I have like my official version of the book talk, but this is unique because I'm going back to, to YU, my alma mater, and I want to I want to do something special here. And I want to start framing it, by the way, by saying like, you know, YU holds a very special place in my heart, not just because I went there, but my father, Rabbi Dr. Eddie Reichman, who now actually is teaching a course there and took over the Rav chair, he also went to YU, he got smicha from Ritz, he went to Einstein. My grandfather from my mother's side uh, was Professor Louis Feldman, who was just incredible and devoted his whole life really to YU. And he was a Harvard graduate, could have taught anywhere. He devoted his life. Anyone who knows him knows that he was incredible. Well, renowned scholar in Josephus and Greek and Latin and literally was world-renowned as the best at what he did. And he devoted his life to Torah to teaching at YU and to the legacy that YU really represents. So what I want to do, I want to do is I want to delve a little bit into something which really is dear to my heart because I spent, spent many years in YU. And personally, I spent many years learning near Rosenzweig Shear and he was one of the most important Rebbeim for me in terms of building my mind intellectually. Also, you know, spent many years in other systems in YU as well. But to frame the reason I wrote this Sefer and what this Sefer really is and what I've devoted my life to, I want to just introduce it by sharing the power of Rav Rosenzweig's Derech of his approach to learning. Because for those of you who are aware and for those of you who aren't aware, like this is going to frame a lot of what hopefully we're going to be able to delve into over the next hour or so. And like first as a pedagogue, Rosenzweig, his power of articulation. So when you hear someone speak, there are different types of speakers. There are speakers who say about one minute of content in an hour or, or 20 hours, however long they speak. And then there are speakers who say an infinite amount within every word they say. They're, they're measured, calculated. They know that they understand the power of articulation, how to measure and, and literally express a lifetime of thought and every time they open their mouth, and that was unbelievable. So to value, to really see like there's something that to aspire to in terms of the brilliance of Torah. It's not just a bunch of random sources, a bunch of random armakamas, a bunch of random ideas, and you just kind of like open your mouth, share some stories, and then you know that's what Torah is. And the Torah is brilliance, it's wisdom, it's the depth of life itself. And as a Talmud Chacham, Rav Rosenzweig really represents a unique approach to what Torah could be, because you can call it spectrum thinking, where there's a level of nuance, balance, sophistication, where you appreciate the entirety of a sugya. And it's hard to really understand what that means until you experience it. But in the realm of Gemara, in the realm of Halacha, there is a powerful principle called Eluv Eludivelekim Chayim that this and this, they're both true. They're both the words of God. Now, when you learn Torah, especially when you learn Halacha, if you learn Talmud, you learn Gemara, there's different ways of approaching what the goal is when you're learning. 
Right? One approach is that there is a single right answer. There's a single truth. And your goal when you learn is to ascertain that truth. So you say, is it A? Is it B? Nah, it's, it's, a, it's a B. And like at the end of the day, it's A. Or maybe it's B. Or maybe it's C. Maybe it's somewhere in between. And you go through the spectrum. Learn the Ramban and the Ritva and Rashi and Tosos and the Ramban. And you learn, I mean, and you go through like the full. And you, it's like, look at Tosos. And you start to see that there's different approaches. You start to build out the spectrum. So again, you say, this is the right answer. That's one approach. The other approach is that there are multiple truths. There's a pluralism of truths. And it's not that there's A or B or C, there's A, B, and C. And the spectrum is true because there are multiple truths within any topic of discussion. And you learn to think in a nuanced way. The deeper approach, which you can find in some of the Rishonin, is that there's a oneness of truth, as in there's actually one truth. But in the world of finitude, in the world of, of physical reality, like the creation of a physical world, like we live in a world of multiplicity. So the truth is both the fact that the spectrum is true and also combines to create something that's a little more than just the spectrum. It, it's the totality that's both the actual result but transcends the sugya. And then what happens is you realize that it's not that there are a bunch of truths or that you appreciate the process because it gets you to the truth, the sugya is the truth. And learning is, like the process of learning is literally engaging in the process of truth and building truth. And when it comes to music, when you hear a song, and you know, look at the piano in the background, like I love music. When it comes to music, it's a clink and a clunk, just a bunch of notes. But when you can weave the notes together in a brilliant way, you don't hear the notes, right? That, that's the brilliance of Torah, is that every individual piece is true, but it comes together to create something even more. And it was a great analogy of a guy who's holding onto something and he says, this thing that we're holding onto, it's the, the real way that says that three blind people are holding onto something. And one says it's a snake. The other says it's a tree, it's a trunk of a tree. The other says, no, it's, it's a horn, it's, it's, a, it's a chauffeur, right? So what are they holding onto? They're holding onto an elephant, right? One person's holding onto the trunk, he thinks it's a snake. Other person's holding onto like, you know, the, the elephant's, leg and he thinks it's the trunk of a tree. Another person's holding on to the husk and he thinks it's a horn. If you're holding on to different perspectives and you think that's the only truth, you're living in a small reality. And part of becoming more objective is learning to think with nuance, understanding other perspectives and building a more nuanced holistic approach which accounts for every possibility. And it's the world likes simplicity, likes to take sides on issues. If you can understand every perspective, you start to really build yourself into a level of existence and comprehension and experience that other people simply can't understand because you start to just elevate your level of how you approach everything. And it's the same thing for MS. It's like the kid comes to his dad and he says, you know, Shimmy punched me. He goes over Shimmy says, why do you punch him? He says, yeah, because Ellie, Ellie kicked me. Why do you kick him? Yeah, because he shoved me down the stairs. Why do you shove him down the stairs? Because he called me a name. It's like, who told the truth? Did they both tell the truth? Did neither tell the truth? Because there are pieces of a story. And if you hold on to one small piece and you think it's the only truth, then what ends up happening is you live within a small reality and you've confined yourself to say that this is the only way, every other way is wrong. And that's the, the power of the depth you can go to in Gemara, in Gemara the Ian, in really delving into Sigis and Shas. 
when it comes to Kedushin and Shlichus and, and Sanhedrin and just like really Baba Kam and Kinyanim and like that, that's brilliant when it comes to the depth of Torah principles, when it comes to halachic reality. And like what Rav Rosenzweig does is brilliant, right? He'll learn, anyone who's learned a, a topic in Shas, there's different ways to do it, but he'll open up, let's say you open up Be'ez Amid, you know, Be'ez you start learning through the Mishnah, learning through the Gemara, you'll learn that Mishnah Gemara, then you learn the Rishonim on that Mishnah Gemara, right? You learn Rashi, you learn Tosos, learn the Ritz, the Rambam, the Rashba, you learn the Rambam, obviously, you learn all the, you know, Pirishim on the Rambam, you'll go through everything. But then you'll also learn every other topic in Shas that relates to this topic, both directly and somewhat indirectly. And then you'll learn all the Rishonim on those topics. And then you'll interconnect them together and compare them and say there seems to be contradictions. Why is he hold this here and this there? And then you'll start to take a step further out and start to talk about meta-halachic concepts and how the, the spectrum works. And it's brilliant. But now is where we transition, because that's the realm of Lamas. That's the realm of Gemara. There's another realm of Torah called Machshav, Jewish thought. I'm not going to translate Jewish philosophy. We'll translate Jewish thought. And most people, especially people who value Gemara, value Halacha, value the analytical brilliance of Torah, they have a hard time appreciating Machshav, mostly because, well, number one, a lot of what people think of as Machshav are Dvartlach. It's like, why did Yaakov do this? Because he wanted to connect with Hashem. And like, that's a really cute word. You should connect to Hashem. A lot of the brilliance of Torah is almost absent in the way most would approach Machshav, or let's say just like the normal things that you'll hear. And when it comes to Machshav, that's one version, is that Machshav is literally just like the ideas of life, like cute vartlach, nice little things on the parsha and things like that. The second approach is that there's, there's more of a philosophical thought of the approach to Torah. And the thought of philosophical approach is really just based on intellect, right? They're Al-Bag, they're Ben Ezra, uh, people who are philosophers who really, you know, thought about life and had their approach. I'm not going to get into like a lot of the technicalities and the, you know, Aristotelian influence in a lot of medieval, uh, medieval Jewish philosophers. And we're going to also leave out the Rambam right now because we can spend about 3 million years talking about the uniqueness of the Rambam, and we're not going to get into that right now. But the third category is when you delve into Machshava from perspective, you're delving into the absolute depth of the Mesora of deeper Jewish wisdom. And like the Maharal, the Ramchal, the Ramban, the Moshe Shapiro, it's a richness, an interconnectedness, a depth, a beauty that's indescribable. And that beauty does lie in Gemara Be'in to an extent, right? The beauty of Gemara Be'in is really the technical analytical process of breaking down the figure and seeing how everything comes together, how everything fits, how the lumbus plays out, how the brilliance of a Gemara cup, so to speak, can just be endlessly sophisticated in those chakiras, those distinctions, those small nuances of really building your Torah mind. But a lot of people don't think Machshava has that same sophistication, and it does, and it's more than Gemarbian. And, and that's the real truth. The real truth is that I'll tell you from, I can't tell you like objectively, I'll tell you from my personal experience because that's the best way to frame this. Like, there's nothing to 
there's no words that can be used to describe real machshava. And I've been through many, many systems. Like Baruch Hashem, I've learned in so many incredible yeshivas and YU and Shaladin and Reitz. I've been in the academic world. I've studied at Azraeli. I've studied at Revel. I've studied at Harvard. I've studied at University of Chicago. I've been in the business world. I'm very connected in the business world. I took coursework at Booth U Chicago. It's the top business school in the world. I've studied with many brilliant business minds. I've studied in the motivational inspirational world, Tony Robbins and Tom Billion, Brenda Burchard, Les Brown. Like nothing touches, nothing even like touches Machshava like not even a little bit. And the reason is because Machshava Be'in, the real depth, real thought, real, really becoming a thinking person. It, it's the root of it all. It's almost like transitioning from Newtonian physics to quantum mechanics, where Newtonian physics is very analytical, very mathematical, very logical. And then you transition into this realm, which is both fascinating, but mind-blowing. And it deepens your entire understanding of existence in a way that literally opens you up to a world that you didn't know existed. And that's, that's the most powerful. The first time that I had my mind blown, I said, like, this is what I've been looking for. Like, this is, there's always like a deeper layer, but I wasn't, no one's giving me that deeper layer. All of a sudden, they start getting that deeper layer, but it happened again and again and again, a billion times. And it, it's like when you, it, until you experience it, it's like trying to explain what chocolate tastes like to someone who's never tasted chocolate. You can't, you need to experience it. But the reason why it's so powerful is because Mahshava fundamentally transforms the way you learn Kola Torah Kula. Because when it comes to marriage, you can learn Masech Kedushin and never ask, never ask, what's the essence of marriage? Like, what is marriage? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What is happening metaphysically when you engage in marriage? You can spend your whole life learning the distinction halachically and in and, and lambdas between Kedushin and Nesuin. Is it about Kedushin when you initiate the halachic transformation? Is it about Nesuin when you, is it two different stages? Are they related? Is it first stage, second stage? What's happening? You can spend literally thousands of hours on these distinctions and they're incredibly important to think about. And when it comes to Hilchos Kinyanim, why is why are we making a transaction when it comes to marriage? When it comes to Das and Ratzon, when it comes to like your internal knowledge and awareness and wanting it and Shlichas, how can you get married through Shlich? These are all important questions. Really important. But you can spend years of your life learning that and not asking yourself, what's marriage? And it happens. I've spoken to hundreds of Tamid Chachamim who are like, yeah, you know, you're right. Like, I've never really thought about it. And you, I never really thought about why a Kenyan works. What's, what is a Kenyan? I'm just thought about the surface level mechanics. And in physics, right? You want to learn physics, but what about metaphysics? Metaphysics is the framework of how to frame how you exist in a physical world. And when it comes to mitzvahs, you can spend your whole life thinking about, is it the maisa? Is it the result? Where's the chalos? What's that? But what is a mitzvah? Like, there's always going to be the question of why does this matter? And you could just answer this as the Ras Hashem. I don't need to answer that. But you look at it's like literally the Rambam, which we can spend like hours and hours and hours just in like this part of the Rambam. But the Rambam, the Rambam, like every great Balian of all time, tell you the purpose of life is metaphysics. The purpose of life is depth, is wisdom, is ideas, is principles, is philosophy, and that which 
enters into this post-rational stage of really contemplating existence, life, meaning, purpose. Why am I here? Why is anything here? What is anything? What is the concept of what? Why is why? Start literally just like starting with the ABCs and they sound like dumb questions. They sound like five-year-old questions, but that's really what a philosopher is. It's not this like dumb technical thing where you just like sit and like ask technical questions. It's someone who loves wisdom who loves being curious and asking real why questions and never has this illusion that they understand everything. It's, you know, Havdil, Socrates was famous for being known as the most brilliant person in his time. And when he was asked why, what, what makes you the most brilliant person? He said, I know that I know nothing. And the real depth behind that, and that's a very deep Torah concept, which is not a Socrates original, just he's well known for it. The depth behind that is that when you know that you never have full knowledge, you don't just give over the same idea you've been sharing for the past 50 years, you're always deepening. And to believe the Torah has that much depth, that you can infinitely deepen what you've already understood is incredible. I know people who spent five years really becoming brilliant and spend the rest of their life sharing what they learned for five years, and you can see it in how they teach. To give up on learning more and to say this is all there is, is to cut the brilliance of Torah so short and to cut your own capacity to grow so short. That's really, that itself is one of the most incredible things that real Torah wisdom gives you. It gives you an understanding of how little you understand and helps you fall in love with the process of deepening. And really, Machshav and Torahism gives you that foundation. It's the deeper idea of parties that there's always levels of, of deeper layers, deeper levels of everything. And you don't reject the simple approach. It's not like, you know, Tzniyas. The simple approach of Tzniyas is you're supposed to hide yourself. The deeper approach is it's supposed to actually reveal the true you, that you're not a physical body, you're actually a, a, an internal self. And when you can get the attention away from the surface and actually engage in what's inside, you can be actually seen. It's not that, you know, the physical world is meaningless. It's that there's a hierarchy and all of the seeming like simple layers of all of life are always open to more and more depth, sophistication, nuance, and layers. And it transforms, first of all, it gives meaning to everything. Like everything has meaning and not in the fluffy way that Hashem loves you and everything. No, like real depth to everything like really it's brilliant beyond expression like there's no words to describe it and also transforms your experience of everything because it's always about going back to the root and if you live your whole life on the surface it's like you have different levels of yourself right you have your consciousness you have willpower you have your contemplation your ability to contemplate and and imagine and, and really just like enter into a realm of pure abstraction. Then you have intellectual abstraction where you're really processing and analyzing. You have your emotional reality of your physical body. You have relationships that expand beyond yourself, your actions, how you express and speak into the world that moves beyond your internal world. You have your financial situation. You have your level of impact and leadership, how you're coming up and showing up in the world. Once you understand there's so much that goes on, it starts to help you realize that there's, a, there's layers of yourself as well. There's layers of everything. There's always a hierarchy. And that's where the Ramchal, and every Sefer the Ramchal writes, every Sefer, he always talks about Klalim. Klalim and Pratim, you want to uh, pursue a Klal, because there are people who like facts, they like details, like what does a Shulchan Aruch hold? But if you understand one Klal, one principle, it will contain a billion expressions, because if you understand one deep idea, that idea can be expressed and applied in 
an infinite number of circumstances. So if you understand ten, it's like the Rambam's Yud It's the idea that if you go to the root of something, it can contain all expressions. It's the idea of the Aseres Adibros. Rashi, many of the Rishonim talk about how the Aseres Adibros contain all the other mitzvahs. It's not a nice, cute idea. It's the idea of a seed expresses into a tree, and those thousands of branches and hundreds of thousands of leaves are all from that one seed. So go collect a couple seeds. You'll be rich, rich with wisdom, because you'll understand the expression. If you're stuck in the leaves, it's like the forest and the trees. If you're stuck in the expression, you don't understand anything. You're stuck with memorizing what you've heard. But if you understand a principle, you can apply that anywhere. You actually have a, a real ability to think. So it's not so much about learning what to think as much as how to think, because once you learn the principles and ideas, you can apply them. And, and that's why the Rochana Wasserman used to ask his Talmudim, would you rather 100,000 books, 100,000 svarim, or, or 20 books? And his Talmudim said, like, 100,000, what do you mean? He said, it depends. Do you have a filing system? Because if you don't have an organized, if you don't have an organized mind, an organized system, if you have 100,000 books, you have none because you can't access any of them. And it's the same thing most, people, most people's minds are cluttered with data. Think about your computer, there's a hard drive and it can only have a certain amount of memory before you have to start deleting those giant videos that are 20 gigabyte because you can't store that much. It's the same thing for your mind. If you wanna become brilliant, you have to start organizing your mind. You have to start becoming principle-based because 20 principles can account for a billion data points, a billion facts, a billion details. And the deeper you go, that's why in, in science, they're looking for the guts, right? The grand unifying theory. If you wanna understand anything, you wanna go back to the root. And what you want in life is to understand that process. And I'll just share one example. We're gonna transition now to hopefully some really interesting dialogue, but I just, the most important expression of this is the nature of the physical world. How do you view the physical, the world you live in, your body, physics, the physical world, science, everything in the physical world, how do you view it? So most philosophers view the physical world as just a place. It's a place where you can contemplate, think, and if you're an Evan Hashem, if you're a Tamil Chacham, it's a place where you can learn, where you can learn Torah, you can do mitzvahs, you can fulfill your potential. But the Ramchal, the Rambam, the Maharal, basically every Baal Machshav and that Masorah talks about how there's an important Bright, uh, important medrash, really one of the first midrashim, and says, Baruch Hu, so to speak, used the Torah to create the physical world, which means that the physical world is an expression, not a creation, an expression, an emanation, an expression of Torah. That is one of the most, if not the most important distinction that most people never hear. Because what that means is that the physical is spiritual. It's not... It's like your child. Your child is an expression of you. It's not you, but it's an expression. You can see a lot about the father or the mother from the child because of very similar genetics. So when you look at the physical world, if it's an expression, you don't transcend the physical to engage in the spiritual. You don't have to get away from the physical. The physical is not bad. It's tough though, it's, it's secondary. In terms of the hierarchy of the spectrum, the spiritual is ideal, Torah is primary, but the physical, is to a degree Torah. And what that means is that everything in the world carries with a depth. It's like when you have a seed, if Torah is a seed and the world is the tree, the expression of 
that seed and every mitzvah is like a branch or leaf on that tree, you start to see that there's literally an interconnected system of interconnectivity and oneness and depth. And that's what beauty, that's what wisdom, that's what brilliance is. It's interconnectivity. It's brilliant. It's not just a bunch of pieces and parts and you say goodbye, that was a nice year. It's when everything comes together. And it's mind-blowing when you get a small taste of it. It's beyond mind-blowing when it becomes life itself. And the real depth of this, by the way, is that everything in the physical world is a lower form of truth. Just like we talked about, that there's like a spectrum of truth within this idea. When you learn physics, you learn quantum physics, quantum mechanics, you learn psychology, philosophy, mathematics, you learn like entrepreneurship and business, you learn like the beauty of relationships. That's all an aspect of truth. And when you can see that, like learn the Arizal and learn quantum mechanics, learn the Maharal and learn mathematics, it is mind-blowing, mind-blowing. You can give like a simple analogy of Perkyavas in psychology, but it's mind-blowing. And it's not that Torah is also true. It's that Torah is the source of truth. It's that when you understand hierarchy, you say klal and prat, source and expression, seed and tree, seed and branch, branch and leaf. You have to realize that it's not just you know, source and expression, but there's an infinite layer of a hierarchy of more primary, more fundamental, more source. And this is more fundamental than something below it, but there's something that's the source of that, which in the Asar Sedibros, right? You don't have just like 10 that are equal. You have two structures of five and five, and there's a whole, a lot of depth in that, by the way, and the safer, obviously. But the point is that the real problem is that most people, number one, don't believe this is true. Like they don't think this is, this exists in Torah. And number two, even those that think this is beautiful, this sounds amazing, it's inaccessible to them especially for most English readers, because the way the Maharal Ramchal, the way they wrote was for a specific time in a certain way. And there's, there's so much that goes into a lot of these things. And it's also in Hebrew. And when you write it in English, you lose a lot in translation, just like when you translate the Torah, you lose a lot, which by the way, coming to Hanukkah, that was part of the, you know, the post-Hanukkah explosion. The Gemara talks about when the Torah was translated into Greek. But the idea is that essentially when I was younger, I thought the world needed inspiration. But what the world needs, what we need, especially as Christ, what we need wisdom, we need ideas, principles, we need to go back to the root because the greatest skill set to develop in life is self-awareness. It's not learning what to think. It's not learning the facts of life. It's delving deeper and deeper and deeper. It's learning how to think. And what's, what's, what's I find to be truly fascinating is that when you're five years old, you learn a certain level of mathematics, right? When you're six, you learn the ABCs of math. And then right, like the second you finish that, in second grade, you learn the next layer, right? It's the evolutionary process of every field of wisdom. So you delve deeper into mathematics. You start learning multiplication. Then you start going into like calculus. And you start, you, there's a progression. It's the same thing in English. It's the same thing in every field of knowledge. It's the same thing in Torah, same thing in learning Gemara. When it comes to most people's understanding of Hashem, like it stops at the five-year-old stage, right? Hashem exists, nothing else. And there's good reason for that. We can talk about why historically that is and the, the philosophical enigma of engaging into that discussion. But 
most people, the same level of appreciation that they have for deeper Torah wisdom, the nature of the physical world, nature of existence, the purpose of your life in this world, the nature of everything you can possibly imagine. Every, look around the room and just start looking at things. The, the nature of those things, the nature of everything and anything, every concept, every idea, that there's so much there. And that, that, that's the entire purpose of the Sefer. It's designed to give you the gateway. Like, this by no means is going to give you everything. This by no means is the Sefer that I wanted to write as like my magnum opus, so to speak. Like, there are many, many more books you know, that are coming. A lot of them are on Gemara Be'in and are, it's not like, you know, just Machshava. It's not that you have to ignore Halacha and Lamdus and Gemara and, and Musra and Hashka. Like, all of those things are so important. But giving people an, a gateway to open your mind into the depth of Torah wisdom, and most importantly, most importantly, the entire structure of the Sefer is designed for you not to learn the Torah, but to live it. Because the goal is not to become a philosopher, the goal is to become a living Torah, to think and breathe Torah, to see the world through Torah and to express it. It's why the Meiri says why someone's Osik Torah is not putter from doing mitzvahs, because the whole purpose, so if you're involved in Torah, usually, if you're involved in the mitzvah, you're patr from the mitzvah, but if you're involved in learning Torah, the Mary says you're not patr from the mitzvah, because the whole purpose of learning is to live it, to express it, and if you disconnect thought from action, you become the paradigmatic classic philosopher that people don't like, who's like in their own ivory tower in their head, but if you learn to live a life of brilliance, of depth, of Torah, of being inspired, bridging all those different pieces of the brilliance, the intellectual brilliance, the contemplative experiential brilliance, the inspired emotional capacity to live it and express it, to, to bring it into the world. You're living a different type of life. So the way the Sefer is designed is that it's organized according to the Parsha. It's not a Parsha Sefer. It's organized according to the Parsha because most people can't engage in these types of things. And it's so daunting to open up a big, you, know, you look at most, most people that get the Sefer. And they look at how thick it is, and they're like, it's much bigger than I thought. Uh, so there's a lot in here. There's definitely a lot in here. But it's broken up according to the Parsha to give people, like, uh, it's, it's, you, can, you can digest one chapter a week. Right? You, you don't have to say, I'm going to commit to finishing this whole Sefer. You say, I'm going to commit to a chapter. Each chapter is isolated, individual, but it connects, obviously, with every other piece, just like a tree. Every piece is connected. The footnotes connect all the pieces together. There are stories to frame every chapter because the, the concept of a story is it gives potency and emotional reality to that which is abstract. So it frames the ideas, the, the philosophical abstract ideas of each chapter. Then there's a summary at the end of each chapter because most people learn deep ideas. And like, that was amazing. And someone asks them, what did you learn? They say, I don't really know, but like, that was amazing. So the goal is not just to learn it, but to really have those, those, those bullet points, those takeaways. And then there's questions for you to bring that Torah into a social environment, to bring it into a chavrusa, the Shabbos table, to with you on a date, things like that. And then there's takeaways so that the abstract Torah wisdom doesn't remain in the realm of abstraction, but becomes something you actually live, which is, as Mrs. Sass talked about, the, the idea of the self-mastery course is much more focused on living Torah than learning Torah. It's really how you apply it. But as, as I kind of opened up, this was not the standard book talk. Like the standard book talk is really more to focus on, on the Machshava. But being that we're in YU, a place which represents Torah Manda, that real synthesis, Gemara Be'in, I was in a Rosenzweig here for so long, and I, I know so many people here will appreciate 
the nuance and the very specific elements that we just discussed. So I, I give a very, very different presentation. And uh, you can find online many of the classic versions. That's not really what I thought was, was most appropriate for tonight. So I really hope, obviously, everyone gets a safer. But now, as was as is really best, like we live in the podcast age because people love dialogue, people love discussion, people love to like see behind the, you know, the so to speak prepared presentation. What I think would be amazing now is to really spend some time just engaging, engaging in dialogue. This went a little longer than I expected. I apologize, Rabbi Dr. Sheffman, for that. But obviously, people can leave whenever they think they have to leave. But we're going to now open it up to discussion. And then after we have that discussion, we're going to open up the questions to you. So you can start writing questions in the in the question place right now in the comment section. And we'll, we'll be able to hopefully address that after. But now I'm going to now transition, and hopefully we'll be able to have a really uh, engaging and fascinating discussion. Okay, thank you, uh, Rabbi Reichman. That was uh, truly inspirational um, and aspirational. Uh, and uh, I think that um, from uh, what, what I really would, would love uh, is, is actually a, a practical example, if you have one, right? So uh, the, the stage has been set, uh, the explanation as to why this book is important and the, the loftiness and uh, essentialness of, uh, of Mahshava has been spelled out in sort of inspirational cosmic you know sort of uh, transcendental terminology and, and I think that uh, people uh, would appreciate if you can uh, like you say you do at the end of the chapters maybe at the end of this chapter um, bring it down to earth a little bit what, what would be a practical example uh, you know whether it would be what is marriage about uh, you know, if not just the, uh, you know, the nuances of Kedushin and Nisuin and the Chakiras, uh, or, or perhaps, uh, you know, even if you want to limit it to maybe this week's Parsha and, and, and what the message is on a, uh, not just on a, a broad sort of cosmic level, but on a, how that translates into the, uh, the real level. So that's a, that's a great question. And it's hard to choose one because to give one as the paradigmatic example is a very difficult it's a very difficult task, but I'll give, I'll give the, the one which is the basis of the entire Sefer. The entire Sefer, it's called the journey of Jerusalem itself, and actually is called Lech Lecha, which is this week's question. And the real question is, you will hear every, every Rav, every educator, every psychologist say, at the end of this year, we should be Zoha to maximize our potential, live out our purpose, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's really nice, and it's cute, and it's, it's, it's something that we, by definition, relate to, but what does it mean to actualize your potential? And there is an incredible Gemara, Gemara Nida Daflama Bees, which if you've heard me speak, this is literally the Gemara that I'll share all the time. It's the foundation of this entire Sefer. And the Gemara says that when we were in the womb, we learned Kol Torah Kula, all of Torah. And just before we were born, the Malach, the angel that taught us Kol Torah Kula makes us forget it. So everyone asks the same question. What's the purpose of making us learn it if we're going to forget it? Like, why teach it in the first place? Like, what's going on here? So the Vilnagun gives, and it's not just the Vilnagun, but he says it like very explicitly, that he gives the most incredible answer. He says that we're not learning Torah in a way that you learn Chumash Chumash Rashi. We're learning a much deeper Torah. We're learning, you know, Stakel Barisa Bar Amma, the Torah is the foundation of reality. We're learning that Torah of reality. And we're learning the purpose of everything. We're being shown the blueprint, the story, the script. But more importantly, 
we're being shown our unique Torah, our unique purpose in life. And then you, you don't forget it, as in you lose it, you lose access to it. And your entire journey of life is simply resurfacing your dormant potential. So it's why when you hear a very deep idea, you don't feel like you're learning, you feel like you're almost like remembering it, like it somehow clicks, and there's no reason it should click, like according to Locke, where our minds are just a blank slate, when something, like the idea of resonates with me doesn't make sense, why should an idea resonate with you, but if there's actually a you, it's like Michelangelo was asked, how do you create these amazing sculptures, and he said, oh, I, I, I don't create the sculpture, like you see this amazing sculpture, you think I create it, when you see the original marble slab of stone, I see the sculpture, I'm just moving away the rubble, so it's expression versus creation. And then the entire journey of life becomes self-awareness. So the real journey of growth, which many people, they get inspired by people who want to be like that. And they want to be that, right? I've you know, seen this time and time again, where the most important thing in life now becomes self-awareness, where the goal is to understand you, not what to think, but how you think, not what to learn, but how do you learn? And everyone thinks differently. Everyone learns differently. Everyone literally has, there's something there inside of you as opposed to just creating something that you think would be good to create. And then the question is what clicks. So now you start to experiment. You start to say, what talents do you have? It's like when I taught myself to play piano and guitar for the first six months, I was awful. It was 12th grade. I had some extra time. I was like, I'm going to teach myself to play guitar and piano. It was awful. And I kept that. And then things start to click. I start to be able to like hear something and play into the piano. I started to be able to write songs. I started to, it's incredible. Same thing with every area that you experiment with. You start to see what you are and what you're not. And most people don't know what they are or what they're not because they just haven't tried it. It's like a chemical reaction. When you interact with something, there's a reaction because you are something. So when you learn something and it doesn't resonate or it resonates, it just means that either that's not for you or it's not for you yet. And it means that like the way your mind is built, the way you've structured your personality, the way you've experienced life, there's a certain you that's engaging, interacting with everything that you come across in life. So every person you interact with, every, and talk about marriage, the ideal marriage, we live in a world where marriage is falling apart, but the ideal marriage is, and I'm not going to get into the deeper ideas of male and female now, because that would require like a literal three-hour discussion without, like, Political correctness aside, if we we're going to have that conversation, it would need to be done right. So I'm not going to engage in that at all right now. But we, I will just like lay it out. If you can only imagine, it's like Adam and Chava, all right? The Midrash says Adam and Chava originally created as one being, one dragon as being, and then they were pulled apart. Why? Same exact idea that you're given the ideal, right? You learn cultural kolum, you lose it. Your job is to recreate you. It literally just becoming of what you already are at root. That Adam and Chava, man and wife are originally created as one because that's what the truth is and you're pulled apart you're born as two separate beings because the goal is to recreate what's true now marriage is two people literally recreating that one is so you don't lose your identity as an individual but you create a larger share itself so when two people you know getting practical two people who are engaged in the journey of becoming their true self and then they build that union together where individually they're on this incredible journey of growth and then they build it together in a marriage and then that expression of love is creating a family around that premise especially when you're trying to actually make an impact in the world it's the most incredible paradigm of marriage most people they get married because like that's what people do it's like that time of life you're getting pressure you're just like it's that time of life where you have urges or that with like that's not a reason to get married yes there's a halacha to get married but halacha is always the expression of truth lived out in a medium of responsibility as opposed to just like do it because like 
that's where there, there is an idea of a chok. That's a whole separate discussion. Almost everything in Torah is an expression of such brilliant depth, meaning, and truth that it makes everything meaningful. So you talk about this week's Parsha, Avram is told to go on the Lech Lecha journey. Why? Because Lech Lecha, Lech Lecha doesn't just mean go, it means Lech Lecha, go to yourself. And all of the Mepharshim ask, why doesn't, why doesn't Hashem specify where you're going? Right? If you're going to a wedding, you say, here, leave, you don't, you don't care where you leave from. I, I care, show up at the wedding at five o'clock. That's not what Hashem says. He says, leave from where you're going. He gives them the starting point, not the destination. It's ludicrous. But it's not, it's brilliant. Because on the journey, lechlecha doesn't mean go, it means lechlecha, go to yourself. If you're really engaging that journey to yourself, to the journey into the unknown, you don't know the destination, you know the starting point. If you were to ask your younger self five years ago, you know, where do you think you'll be in five years? Or try explaining to your five-year-old, five-year younger self who you are now. Your younger self wouldn't understand. It's like trying to explain to a three-year-old quantum mechanics. All they hear is like candy, candy, candy. Like their mind cannot grasp what they have not yet built as a vessel to understand. So what ends up happening is that all of life becomes a journey of becoming, becoming you. Self-awareness becomes the key. And then every process is a process of trying to get more in touch with that which is actually true. So there is this endless pursuit of that which is actually unattainable. And then the only way, it's why a lot of entrepreneurs burn out, the only way to really do it well is to enjoy the journey. If your goal is to you know, have a perfect marriage, you're going to be miserable, right? If your goal is to be in great shape, you're going to be miserable. If your goal is to be wealthy, you're going to be miserable. If your goal is to you know, teach Torah to the world, you're going to be miserable because it's going to take a lifetime to get there. But if your goal is to realize that the very essence of being in this world is being a becoming, being someone who becomes, you fall in love with becoming. And that's why Shabbos, Shabbos is the Gemara Brachos, the Zion says that Shabbos is me'in ol because right, Olam Haba is where the creative process of life stops and you experience everything you are in a static state without getting into all the nuance required to really understand that. But the idea is that Shabbos is that weekly pause. It's the cessation of Malacha. Malacha means, same source as Malach, an angel, a creative emanation from Hashem. Malacha is creative activity. It's the activity that was used to create the Mishkan. We stop creative activity because Shabbos is tasting experience of endpoint and pausing the creative process. So, what ends up happening is that all of life is a journey of becoming, a journey of enjoying the process of becoming, clarifying your destination as you go and recognizing that you'll never be there, but you're going to always be able to accomplish more. And that's their imbalance, says that the Russia says, I'll never get there, so why try? The Tzaddik says, like, you know, where's the next step? Like, how do I take the next step? So everything practical is always an expression of something very deep. And a lot of people get stuck in, so where's the practical, where's the practical? And then they lose the appreciation of the depth or they get so obsessed with the depth that they lose the practical. Most people are either doers or thinkers. But if you can bridge the gap and say, I want to really do this, like I want to practically do it, but I want to do it right, then you need to bring the base medrash into your life and bring your life into the base medrash. And what that means is you can't turn off the thought when you go and live your life and you can't turn off your life when you go and start thinking. It's not, you're not one unidimensional. You are so brilliantly complex. And the most practical advice is 
to fall in love with the depth behind everything practical. And that's a lot of people who are, let's give you a cute example, like a lot of people who spend a lot of their life in the base managers, they have a very hard time transitioning to getting a job or transitioning to living in the world because it's so practical. It's like, I just wanna, I don't want this. Like, I wanna just do what I love doing. And whether that's you know, learning Torah or teaching or music, it's like, I wanna just live a life of awesome depth and wisdom. And this is just such a waste of my time. But when you learn to bring a level of intent consciousness into anything and everything you're doing, you can master your experience. So getting very practical, it's not that this will transform your life when you're able to sit down and contemplate, have a nice you know, hour-long break on Shabbos to just contemplate life. It transforms life itself. It takes time. It takes time. It takes a commitment. If it was easy, everyone would do it. And by the way, that's why I devote so much time to motivation and inspiration because it's really hard to live these ideas. You need to really want it. You have to want it so bad. Everyone wants this, but it has to become something you need. It has to become your identity. And that's why a lot of the safer, by the way, is devoted to some you know, practical motivation, inspiration as well, because to really live this life, you have to be an idealist and a practicalist. Like you, you can't, if you're just an idealist, you're going to give up because life is hard. Like you're going to fail so many times along the way and life is not this beautiful, you know, symphony. We're not living the very curated, you know, movie story where it's like that perfect fall, then the great ascent and everything's wonderful. Like life is messy. But if you realize there's nothing else to do here, like there's literally nothing else worth doing with your life. Like what, what is there to do with life? Like everyone's stressed, everyone has anxiety, everyone's struggling, everyone has their own problems and they're real. But one approach is just to escape movies and TV and social media and junk food and having conversations about nothing. That's an approach because it numbs the pain. But the pain is because, and just to give you another you know, beautiful idea, the Ramban says that your challenges are not there to break you, they're there to build you. That you want to build muscle, you have to rip your muscles apart. If you want to build yourself, everything that's hard, like that's where you're going to find your purpose and growth. And a lot of people, they just don't think the challenges are going to provide any meaning. So they just cripple under the challenge as opposed to really embracing it and using the pain to create a journey. So the real, the, like the practical is everywhere, but it takes a commitment to really bridge the gap between the practical and the theoretical. And that was obviously a pretty long answer, but that's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a loaded question because it's really the main question of the book is the bridge between idea and action. And that's really where it comes from. All right, so uh, just uh, filtering my own questions here and some questions from the chat. Um, I think uh, sort of a follow-up to that would be, uh, and this is a theme throughout the book that I, uh, I, I noticed um, that within the discussion questions, sometimes you uh, do a great job of, you sell a point in the, in the main text and then in the discussion, you, um, push back a little bit to, to have people sort of like, is this really true? Do you think, is there another way of looking at it? Which I really, which I really enjoyed. So I, I'm going to do that. Uh, I think you do it to yourself, but I, I want to sort of bring it out because I think it pulls out the point. Um, the theme of 
sort of going above your limits and there's nothing that can stop you and, and everything uh, is within your, your capabilities, pulling off of your, uh, you know, going through struggles and finding that, that challenge and, and overcoming it. Um, but are, are there, are there limits, right? What, what are the limitations? You know, go, going to your example of, of piano and it relates to finding yourself also, right? So if you went and you tried hard and you played the piano and then eventually it, it clicked and it paid off. And, you know, there are people who play the piano and it doesn't click or it never clicks. And, and it might be, you're not, you don't have that inner talent or that, you know, uh, that voice or that innate ability or the, you know, so, so how, what what are your what are your thoughts on the the limits of that or, or the balance of that the, the tension between those ideas? So I'll start off by saying that I've gone back and forth on this question for probably the past decade because I I've had you know talk about spectrum thing. There's a couple of options right? when you think about your potential. Right? Everyone who's listening now is going to ever listen to this. There's a couple options. One is that you have infinite potential and everyone has infinite potential infinite, meaning literally no end. So one, it's a possibility, not likely. You probably won't believe it based on your experience of life, especially if you're a seasoned, you know, practical person who has failed many, many times along the way. One option is that you have infinite potential. The second option is that there's different types of infinite. And especially if we go back to the Gemara Nida, where you learned your purpose, if your purpose is different than my purpose, how can we all have infinite potential? Right? Potential has to be, potentiality has to be differentiated in order for it to be a genuine expression of self. If the goal is to become self-aware and find out who you are, then who you are is not who I am. And the you is everyone listening. And the me in this case is me, but I am me, you're you. That's why the Rambam says everyone can be a tzaddik like Moshe Rabbeinu. And everyone asks, no, you can't. Like Moshe was the greatest human being of all time. And Rucham Wasman says that the shavua that you make in Ansin Gemara Nida, by the way, is to become a tzaddik, and tzaddik means someone who fulfills their potential. You make a, a shavua to fulfill your potential. You can become a tzaddik, fulfill your potential, like Moshe Rabbeinu, but your potential, not his. So then the goal becomes to surpass your limits of your current limiting beliefs. So most people, like I live in the world of philosophy, of, of you know, the post-rational, the motivational, in the world of accomplishment and achievement, especially in business and entrepreneurship and going out in the world and doing things, the main factor that holds everyone back is limiting beliefs. I'm not good enough, I'm not capable, I'm not brilliant enough, I don't have the right connections, the right resources, I've never been able to do this, my parents told me I wasn't this, I was this, I'm not good looking enough, I don't have it. Everyone has their own but, 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 but. So what you do when you break the limitations is you just see what you're actually capable of. Will there be pushback? Of course. Now, I firmly believe that if you devote your life to becoming the very best at anything, you could, in a couple of years, like if you wipe out all the garbage from your schedule, and I'm not talking about you, Rabbi Shifa, I'm saying anyone who's listening, if you wipe out the garbage from your schedule, right, all the wasted time, the things that are literally just self-sabotaging, holding you back, and you start to build a schedule that's working for you. It's like, it's why I coach, like my goal to start out was just to be a rabbi, to be a rabbi and literally teach this story to the world. But it took time to realize that wasn't going to work because to really do this well, I had to become financially independent. So you know, that's part of the motivation of going to Harvard and Chicago and all these things is to build up the brand to just build something that I can support myself while trying to live out this mission. But along the way, I started to realize that in the world of a business, why I coach CEOs and entrepreneurs and business owners, it's like everyone is holding themselves back in certain categories. 
Like they are surrounding themselves with negative people. They don't really believe they're capable of achieving the goals that they know they want to achieve. So they don't set them. They have cut themselves short on their Torah learning. They've cut themselves short on what a marriage could be, on exercising. They just have given up on exercising or they're like, everyone has their limiting beliefs. When you can just get over those shackles of limiting beliefs and start to believe in there's a greater possibility for the future. By this time, most people have given up on their L resolutions. It's just statistically proven that 15 days after a New Year's resolution, 85 to 90% of people have given up. It's because people live their just their, habit, their habitual identity, who they've convinced themselves they are. So one purpose of giving a ridiculous possibility of what you can accomplished by just saying you can achieve anything is just to break those limiting beliefs and for people to actually see what they're capable of. Then they can recreate boundaries. It's like, if you have a cup of water, if the cup can only hold eight ounces, you can't pour more in. If you break the cup and build a 16 ounce cup, you can pour more in. So it's just creating you know, deeper Jewish thoughts or spheres like Caleb. It's breaking it to build something that's theoretically bigger. So that's one possibility is that you have a limited potential, but limitless compared to where you think it is. And by telling you, you have limitless potential, you can become great. So as a classic, classic example of, can anyone make it to the NBA? I genuinely, genuinely believe that there's like 0.0000001% of humanity that has the, that really is living this like all in, all in, all in, all in, all in type of life where everything in their life in sports, it's the championship level. In Torah, it's the Gautel Hadur level. It's where your life is not perfect, but it's obsessive. It's extreme. And it's it seems like it's unhealthy, but they are living a certain type of chosen life where they said, like, I'm going all in and I'm not turning back. I'm going to become more and more and more and more and more specified as I go deeper and deeper and deeper in onto this like crazy journey, but I'm going all in. Most people just say, ah, it's, it's not for me. Like, I, I don't have a unique journey to go on. But that's just because they live within the shackled existence. So we all read the novel or watch the film and identify with the hero of the story because we know we want, we want to go on this incredible journey, but then we convince ourselves that it's not for me. Like what is the Yates of Heart? It tells you what in your past makes you believe that you are anything worth contributing to the world, that you can do anything great. You've never done anything great. And that's one of the like, I'm not, I'm not great. I'm not great by any standard. I'm not great by any standard of the, the people we've mentioned in this year, the Rebbeim, the Gedolmik. But people do tend to look at me as someone who's like extraordinarily motivated and like accomplishing some things. I'm a very normal person. And I, I, because of the nature of this forum, I didn't really share my story, but like my life fell apart when I was younger and I just like got hooked on trying to make my life the most it possibly can be because I thought I was going to die. I was having like these near-death experiences and I really just went all out when I was 17. It's been crazy. Like I wasn't the Eloy. I wasn't gifted. I wasn't talented. I wasn't the best in my class at anything. I wasn't better. I wasn't better at anything about anything, but I've just like been able to surpass my own boundaries because I don't give in to my limiting beliefs. And that's become part of my mission is helping people just see what they're capable of if they don't get in. So the truth is that being physical by definition means you're limited. Your mind is limited. Your energy is limited. But you have no idea what you're capable of if you really see what you're capable of. So 
that's really one option, right? As in the first option is that everyone's actually limitless. The second option is that you're limited, but limitless compared to where you are. And breaking down the shackles allows you to engage in that. The third more nuanced option is that this idea of a mausoleum Israel, which is that you are limited, but you're also limitless. As in, there's a part of you that's specified and you have a limited potentiality, but when you're truly tapped in, like that's the idea of like, you know, without getting into any other terminology, it's vacuous. When you're connected to the infinite, you become infinite. So you as an individual are limited, but when you're really tapped into Hashem, you can do anything. And it's the idea of like, where's your energy source? It's like the greater your energy source, the more energy you'll have, the greater um, your resource of wisdom, the greater wisdom you'll have. Wherever you're tapping into is why ego cuts you off from Hashem, which limits you to just you. So the idea of Godel Mitzvah Mishena Mitzvah, that when you're connected to the Ratzon Hashem, you become limitless because you're connected to the limitless. So yes, as an individual, you're limited, but the more you tap into truth, the more limitless you become. So one option is you're limitless. The other option is you're limited. Third option is that you're limited, but can become more limitless at times. And that's also the idea of the Avos. Like all the Avos were challenged to overcome their perfection as who they were. So Avram was chesed. His whole life was chesed. He was given a kiris yitzchak, which is gvura, like limiting what he believes is true, his natural media, everything he represents, his legacy, everything he was, he had to give up. And that's why the Malach says, like, now I know you're, you're a man of Yira, because he gave up Chesed and Ava for Yira. And Yitzchak was a man of, of Grua, of, of literally giving up individuality, repeating everything Avram did, constraint, the Akedah, he had to restrain himself. He is a man of Grua. And then his paradigmatic moment is giving brachos to his sons, which is literally an act of Chesed. It's Avram. And then Yaakov is a man of Emes. Everything he does in his life is, you know, Emes teaching Emes to Yaakov. Yaakov is Emes. Everything we know Yaakov about is Sheker. He lied, to Esau, he lied to, to Yitzchak about the brachas with Esau. He says on Esau, now there's depth behind that. Obviously, there's truth behind it. We can go into a different time, but he had to lie. He, he lied to Lavan. He, you know, he had to be a trickster, so to speak, with Lavan. Like, there's overcoming your natural capacity to attach yourself or transcend your nature to become more. So the real truth is that regardless of which of those are the answer and you know, apropos to the Derek Halima we just mentioned, like they're all true from a certain perspective. They're all parts of the story of truth. But I found the best analogy to explain the deepest approach to this question is to think of it as you're blindfolded walking on the edge of a cliff. And you're trying to see what you're capable of and you don't know. Like, the truth is we have no idea what we're capable of. We will never know. You'll never be there. You'll never truly be self-aware. You'll never truly know the absolute about anything, especially yourself. It's endless. It's literally endless. But at your current capacity, there are limitations. Like you can literally see how far you can go right now. But here's the way it works. When you're on the edge of that cliff blindfolded, you don't know where the edge of your capacity is. So you tiptoe. Right? It's like when you're exercising, you don't start lifting weights by lifting 100. You lift how you're much you're capable of. You lift too much, you'll break your body. So you lift 20. But then you see, like, after a month, like, can I do 25? So you, you, you push a little bit to the edge of that cliff to see maybe there's more cliff. That's the weird thing about this cliff. This cliff is somehow always moving. By the way, it can move further in if you're having a read, it can move further back. But this cliff is moving. So you don't know where your capacity is. So you push past the boundary 
and you're going to fail when you hit the boundary. Now, Baruch Hashem, you know, the way that this cliff works is there's a red beep and you don't fall off the cliff when you go too far. You know, Baruch Hashem, you don't get, you don't, you know, it's not like a video game where you die and you get respawned. You, you, you get to keep going, right? You get a little discouraged, maybe you failed, maybe you know, you, you, the relationship fell apart, maybe you lost financially, maybe you didn't get to give that share, you didn't get the job opportunity, whatever it was, right? You just like the music, like my dad used to come in when I was playing music and I said, like, had that sound, he used to go like, Sounds good. Like it was awful, right? Like it, it takes time till you make progress, but you get the signs that, okay, this is my current limit. But then you go back to the drawing board, you go back to the gym, you go back to the base mattress, you go back to building yourself and you come back a little later, whether it's a week, a month, a year, 10 years, whatever it is. And you say like, wow, like I have five more feet of ground. Like I, I'm, I'm more capable. So the pushback is important. And any 45 hour long shear of this nature is going to have, by definition, and should have tremendous pushback because this is like we're going pretty core and root in terms of life itself. And as is the nature of every scene, there's going to be like hundreds of thousands of expressions, and every potent expression is going to say like I don't like that doesn't make sense or that's not my experience or like what about this and those questions are so important but that's the Hegelian process of thesis antithesis synthesis of like the question is that's like why Pesach night we like it's we're so infatuated with questions because questions just create gaps and the gap creates a potential to strengthen your knowledge so that was like in my opinion, that, that was such an important question because that really is, and, and, and like, I know, like I know, like I've spoken to enough people, if we're gonna be honest, um, the number of people who are still here, how many are gonna change their lives because of this? So first of all, I can get the turret and say, what's the point of this? Like, I'll just live my life. I'll just, you know, write my books and people like, what's the point? I'm like, what, like, what am I trying to do? Now, a percent of you will hopefully get the safer, will engage in these, in these ideas, but the natural inclination is inspiration and then back to life because we don't want to fail. We don't want to realize how limited we are. And a lot of people have a negative association with growth because they have to acknowledge their limitations and their failures and their shortcomings. But when you fall in love with growth, when you fall in love with the process, when you fall in love with becoming, never go back. It's, it's, it's like going to the gym. Like I exercise every day. I'm a, I'm a pure intellectual. I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body. I built it. I am not like a person who like really engages in like sports, but I exercise every day. Part of it is because when I speak on stage, I need the energy, but it's the most enjoyable part of my day. It's where I come up with all my ideas, my greatest sheer, my greatest condition to come there because when you can get to the point where when exercising, you're fully engaged and your mind opens up, you get those endorphins released. It's the most enjoyable experience of all time. Most people hate exercise, hate it with a passion because when you start exercising, it's awful feels awful. You hate it. You hate everything about it. It reminds you that you're weak. They have no, you just don't have the energy. You don't have the capacity. Your lungs are just like, you, it's, it makes you literally hate exercising, hate your body and hate so much about yourself. But if you can push past that and start to see progress, it becomes a highlight of your day. So 
limitations are what make the limitless elements of your life the most meaningful. Because if you don't have limitations, then breaking past them wouldn't be enjoyable. But the fact that we do have limitations, it makes the process that much more. And obviously, I can like every one of these questions, we can go on forever and ever and ever and ever. And listen, I've been through Rosenzweig's Q&As, and you ask one question, and it's like an hour and a half sheer. And there's truth behind that. Because if you're asking a real question, the real answer is just endless. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll cut it there. OK. Um... I guess people didn't sign off at nine. Uh, I myself have a, a hard stop at some point. I have to go to a wedding. Uh, but I, I do. There are some other uh, great questions here. Um, I'll mention one, but ask you not to answer it right now. But just so you know, people are thinking about it, and maybe afterwards you can ask it. But I, I say answer is one of the things that I um, I wrote down for myself notes as I was going through the book, and I see a few different messages coming um, coming up here on the same same idea. Uh, the balance between um, when we talk about finding yourself, uh, you know, so when you talk from a, a strictly halakhic, a Torah perspective, you know, there's, there's rights, there's wrongs, there's, there's blacks, there's whites, and then there's, you know, uh, the, the idea you're, you're uh, propo proposing, um, all right, can you hear me? My, uh, my head. That's actually much better, but I can hear you before too. I don't know. Okay. Um, so uh, the the balance between you know finding this concept of self, which itself is somewhat of an ambiguous term and, and hard to define, um, and and knowing what the true self is and and uh, how to distinguish that between uh, real desires, uh, uh, not really sure where your motivations are coming from, what what had you know so uh, there could it becomes gray and becomes blurry and hard to sort of uh, figure all of that out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I, I asked it and uh, I would be wrong to not give the space for an answer um but um i uh i, I would like to if possible uh ask another question i guess you could decide which one you want to answer um the uh the other thing i was i was uh thinking about was uh as you spoke about your own journey uh was the and i think this might be a little bit more real and meaningful uh, rather than sort of abstract than the first one um what idea in the book uh, has helped you the most throughout your journey? Um, and, and part two to that, uh, not, not that part one is going to be that easy, but to make it even harder, uh, what idea have you uh, not yet lived up to and you're still aspiring to, uh, to work on? Um, so you could either go with the, the impersonal first answer, first question or, uh, or the, the so second one. We'll stick with the second question, and also if you if you have to go, I'm actually I have a pretty free schedule tonight, so I'm I'm happy to stay on, and and just continue with the Q and A after you go. I mean, I completely understand that you, know, you have to go to wedding. So let, let's start with the the second question, and then I'll save this the first question for for when you have to go, and then uh, I, I hope people can. I mean, I can actually open the chat. I'm happy to try to continue the Q and A, and we'll. Uh, you know, it's like you learn a lot of things from Rosenzweig, and I, as you can tell from just this conversation, I have an infinite layer of Akarsatov respect and just every other positive, <laughs> positive adjective when it comes to Rosenzweig. But when he, when he does give his time to open up into Q and A, like there are no limits. Like you know, Friday nights, why you should have a tones with Rosenzweig will go on for like 
you know, basically till chakras. So I'm, I'm happy to stay. So in terms of the second question, it's a really good question. And test the first, it tests the first question, by the way. Because the first question is how do you know you're becoming your true self? And the answer, there's a pandemic in, in the Jewish world. And it's not a bad, it doesn't come from a bad place. It's just that when you go, like, first of all, people, everyone has their Rebbe, right? Their Rebbe for this, their Rebbe for, like, life decisions, their Rebbe for halacha, their Rebbe for, like, philosophical questions. And a lot of people, they, they try to have their Rebbe give them the answers to these questions, right? Like, what's my purpose? The right answer to that is helping you come up with the answer yourself. That's, that's number one. Number two... And I'm, I'm kind of answering both, but we'll, we'll kind of see how this, how this goes. The real answer is that there is no aha moment. There's no like, I found it. I'm going to live the rest of my life doing this. And I've seen this the hard way because I've seen people who I know from, you know, firsthand experience in talking with them, that they discovered their koach, their unique abilities very early on and they went with it, but they never really questioned, deepened or explored what they're really capable of. They rode on their early victory, so to speak, it's like, for example, let's say someone writes a book. So you can spend, if it's a good book, you can spend your whole life, whole life, just selling that book, teaching that book, and that's it, right? So you're a book. But that book is like a short chapter in your life. The real short story of your life is endless growth. So the real purpose of your life is not that you found your purpose, but it's literally a journey of finding finding your purpose. Now, finding your purpose needs to have a short-term purpose, which means that you have to identify, identify your current trajectory, journey, struggles, where you are, where you want to be, but you're going to reassess. Like for me, I have a 50-year plan. I'm on year 10 of my 50-year plan. That 50-year plan has changed so many times because where I am now, I never dreamed that I'd be here already. All right, uh, from a certain part of me wanted to be here like when I started, but a certain part of me knew it would take a long time. So in terms of the idea that I've connected with the most and struggled with the most, it's, 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 there's no easy answer, there's no right answer. And from a certain perspective, every, and it's a bad answer from those who want like the simple answer, but when I started out, when I started out, I'll tell you how, how the safer came about. When I started out, so I was doing Rav Rosenzweig for Gemara Ian. I was doing Rav Akiva Tatz, Rav Rosh Shapir, the Maharal Ramchal, like that world for Machshava. I was doing all of these academics, like, you know, Revel, Israelis in Harvard and Chicago for the academics. I was doing like Charlie Harari in the Jewish world, like Les Brown, Tony Robbins, like studying them for, you know, building my, my skills of becoming the best order I can possibly become. Because truth be told, most brilliant people are just that's what they devote their life to. So they're not good pedagogues, they're not good teachers, they're not good orators, they don't know how to speak with clarity and passion and structure, and they live in their world, and people will kind of suck all the brilliance from them, but they won't understand them because they don't know how to convey what they've understood. So I really wanted to make it not just 
brilliance or inspiration, but really bridge the two because most inspirational speakers, and again, they have the roles, not to negate what they really bring to the world, but I don't want to say airhead, but there's no substance. They're not saying anything. They're just saying you can be great. You can be all you can be. It's like, they don't know what greatness is. They don't know anything. They haven't thought. They just like, it's a lot of it's been and like, oh, Charlie Harvey's unbelievable. When I started out, I would meet with him and he really helped me a lot. And he's such an honor. He's so humble. He's amazing. But like, I wanted to, Jonathan, Jonathan Sachs, like, all of a sudden, I modeled him for so many things in terms of global Jewish impact. Now, Shkafikli, I don't like 100% really align with him and certain, like he's much more of a pure rationalist. He's amazing. And the majestic, the nature, the ability to impact everyone and ever, like to be seen everywhere. Like I wanted to represent the best of everything and put it together. And when I started in the realm of, of Mahshava, of what the Sefer is, like a lot of, of real deep Torah is the endless nature of it, the always deepening, the like always, like, like Moshe Shapiro never wrote. The reason why he never wrote is because he was a Bama Chadish. Rosenzweig doesn't really write either. Like when you're thinking, when you're really thinking, to write this Sefer was the most painful experience of my entire life, without a question, the most painful experience. And it was amazing. It was tremendously joyful, especially when thousands of people are learning, like it's amazing, but it was painful because it's not my nature. My nature is I'm a creative, I'm a thinker, I'm always thinking, always questioning, always deepening. And to write the Sefer was to crystallize my mind. And that was the hardest thing for me is to embrace the truth of writing the Sefer, even though we really don't want to. I had so many books that I like, have already set up to write, but really sitting down and writing them is so hard because to write is to say it's going to be this, and it's to take time to crystallize your ideas as opposed to constantly just expand them. And to embrace the MS of needing, it's like I told, I told my wife when we were dating, that I'm going to have like tons and tons of books that are going to like be processed and developed over my lifetime. And like when I die, I'm going to press, like someone will press send, I'll go out and then it'll, it'll be published. And like she said, no, <laughs> like, you're, not, you're not going to do that. Because um, there's a responsibility of impact responsibility to share this. And that was definitely the hardest thing for me was to commit to the, it took three to four years to write this book. And the reason is because I wanted it to be perfect, to really express the brilliance of Torah, but to give people, I'll tell you what I'm most proud of, right? In terms of what I, what I really have gained the most. The most brilliant thing about brilliance is the interconnectivity. It's that everything affects everything and connects to everything. So if you listen to a brilliantly deep shear, and you'll see this, if you listen to this recording, you'll see it time and time and time again. To understand any one idea, you'll have to understand another like five ideas. But to understand those five ideas, you'll have to understand a couple other ideas. But to understand those other ideas, you have to understand a bunch of other ideas. So to understand anything, you need to understand everything. And no one really gives you the process. So when I was building this in Mahshava, I was so lost. And then I would have these aha moments. where like, oh, this connects to this. And this, is, this opens up. And it was an explosion of brilliance. And I was like, oh, 
And then like a month later, another thing happened, would affect everything else that I've learned before then. And it would, everything would start to connect. And there was a spider web of brilliance where if you really understand what this topic has to say, it affects how you see this topic. And this topic affects this topic. And I thought I understood this topic before, but now that I understand this topic deeper, it's affecting how I understand this topic. And everything starts to build and it's incredible. And I got deeper into it and deeper into it and deeper into it. And the way that I... The way that I built this safer is I have a file on everything, right? Every sugya I've ever learned, every topic, every concept, every klal, every misa, every halacha, everything in psychology and philosophy, in, in like all my courses throughout my academic career, in terms of like everything I've learned, every shear I heard, every idea I ever had, everything gets documented, filed, organized, and every file is connected to every other file, and everything is connecting. It's this neural system that exists outside of me. And that's when I started to see what I actually saw and to really understand what I thought I understood but didn't understand. And once you get to see what you believe outside of yourself, you start to realize nothing you think makes sense. You start to see all these contradictions and then you can qualify it. You can build more nuance. You can start to say, okay, this, you have to answer this question because your belief doesn't really hold up. Like this, this concept doesn't hold up. There are just these contradictions. And then you start to build the more nuanced approach and you start to interconnect it together. And what I did in the Sefer, what you'll see when you read it, is that there are footnotes that interconnect all the pieces together. So I'm trying to like get back to like answer the, 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 the question. My biggest struggle in writing the Sefer and the biggest struggle I came across was that I don't like committing things to finitude and really committing and following through like i like the realm of the abstract the creative the you know the, not it's like why every creative entrepreneur struggles with monetizing their business because to monetize you have to really get like salesy and marketing and it's like you need either a brilliant partner who understands your vision you need to give up a little bit on the vision and get a partner who you just adopt or you need to just bite the bullet and figure out how to commit to the practical and for me that was like my biggest struggle but Here's what happened. I've never shared this before. But what happened is that I started to become the Torah in a way that I never knew was possible. Like what we're doing right now, what we're doing right now is like, I have a framework for what I wanted to share. There's no notes. Like I'm not like, you know, reading off of a script. Like I had, for, because there was a very specific thing that we developed in the, in the earlier part, obviously like I was actually more careful. Like I had a very strict outline. But at this point, I'm not a notebook. I'm not like an autopilot. I don't just like say what I prepared. And that happened because I wrote the book. Because until then, I had incredible understanding of Torah, but on my files. Like I didn't really, I wasn't really the Torah. I was in potential and I really understood it, but like I have to like really review again and again and again before I give a shear. I'd be very, very con con constrained and confined when I give the shear to say it exactly how I had prepared it. And now it's a level of flow state of really becoming the content that I don't get stressed when I speak. I don't really prepare that much in the particulars when I speak because it's like when you, there's a great line of when a musician doesn't play the music, but they become the music. And it's, it's based off of an actual Pasuk and Tanakh. But the idea is that the more that you commit to the process of the practical, 
and of really following through, the more you become it. So my biggest struggle became my biggest strength because committing to the process of concretizing, actually writing the book ended up freeing me and making me so much more than I ever thought I could be as opposed to the exact opposite, which is holding me back from that process. And like, that's the answer, which is like, not in the realm that you would, you know, want the answer. The answer would be like, you know, my connection with Hashem or, you know, my marriage or my, you know, my enjoyment of, like, those are all true. Like everything, everything else. And the truth is that like my greatest struggle is that I was too intense. I was too intense when I started out this journey. And anyone who's there at that stage knows that like, I was like in this other world. I was, I was, crazy but I was like there was such a fire and like I got married at the same stage that I started the book and my wife actually like edited the whole safer with me she really really helped with a lot of that but there there became certain calmness that allows me to do so much of what I do now without viewing because very easy, and this is one of the things that I see with everyone who values their time, everyone who's really turned on to life, the first struggle is that you, you can't experience life anymore because there's a constant stress of, am I really maximizing my time? Am I really utilizing my time? And what ends up happening is that you can't be anywhere or do anything because you're always thinking, maybe I should be doing something else. Is this really the best use of my time? You're talking to someone, you're spending time with your family, you're exercising, you're learning this, why should I be learning that? Like everything is a constant and it's like, it's a very guilty type of life where like, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. And to keep that intensity, but do it in a way that you thrive as opposed to always push yourself down, it's very difficult. And being stuck in the practical for so long of actually writing the book, it helped me really work on that. And something that I wasn't good at when I started, like I was, I was purely on fire and I couldn't do practical things. It's like, yes, like at this stage, like I run a, you know, Baruch Hashem, a pretty successful business. And it's very easy to view that as a complete waste of time. But that's what enables me to do everything that enables me to do this. You know, it's like, I do so much of what I do for free and because I love it, because I'm passionate about it. I can travel and speak at schools across the world for a very low price because I don't need the money. Like I'm able to do so many things because of the practical. So you're able to take the, the classic fluffy idea of uplifting the, the practical, uplifting the tough L, and you can take it to a whole new level. So personally, like this journey of writing the journey to ultimate self, as fluffy as it sounds like, obviously helped me on the journey to myself. But like, it hasn't even gotten close. Like, not only like, isn't it done? Like, there's chapters in your life. There are chapters in the story. So, like, that wasn't a direct answer to the question. But I, f I think that like opens up a, a like the window for me in terms of like the struggle and the enjoyment um, along the way. And maybe a little more abstract is not like the specific ideas in the chapter, but the idea of the, the, the safer itself. But the, the book is basically about number one, 
the nature of life itself, the nature of existence, why Hashem created the world, the nature of like deeper themes in life, the nature of the physical world, the, the nature of marriage, the nature of relationships, of speech, of thought, of intellect, of the post-rational, of how to deal with so many classical philosophical questions and problems and ideas. And that's also a self-development safer. So every element of that I've been on my own journey with and every element of that I've been working on too. And I also don't believe in the concept of wait till you're perfect to inspire others. Like I'm, you know, I struggle just like everyone else. It's just an endless commitment to the process. So that that kind of is the Aregel Achas answer to the second half. And if you if you have to go, then I'm happy to kind of transition and start to, to build the, side, the first question. Sure. So I think um, from the, I, I think it was a great answer and um, uh, the, the whole uh, presentation, all your answers have been, have been inspiring. I, I think from a library perspective, they're going to want to close down at least the official program. And I guess unless there's objections, maybe people can hang on after that in terms of, you know, question and answer, but, you know, sort of like the uh, recording aspect and, you know, anybody who needs to go uh, from the, uh, official program uh, or whatever, but I, I barring any um, objections, I guess people can stay on after that. Uh, but any any library official policy on that? Can people hang out on the Zoom and uh, and chat after we're officially done? Yeah, I think we could probably do that for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, again, from, from my perspective, thank you. I do have to, to run to the wedding. Uh, this has been inspirational for me. I do have a book. I've gone through uh, uh, most of it and can, we'll continue to, uh, to go through it as, uh, as we go along. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was, uh, as I said in the beginning, when I heard, I'll just say very quickly, just to, to kind of you know, speak from the heart, there, like, when they kind of like were framing how to do the book talk, when they mentioned you as an option, I was you know, absolutely excited because you come from a perspective of appreciating many different layers and angles of the book with many different, like all the incredible things that you do and represent and understand and value. And in terms of the type of conversation we just had, I don't think we could have, I, I don't think I could have done this. Um, without really feeling connected to someone who would not only appreciate, but like challenge and, and understand and really engage in the way that we're able to. Obviously, like, there's only like a couple of questions, but like, you know, to be continued, obviously. But I just want to thank you so much and I tremendously, tremendously appreciate it. Thank you so much. Looking forward to future, future collaborations and interactions. Amen.